0: As we launch into the book of Job, this book is made of 42 chapters. John Wesley considered this book full of many things hard to understand. It's We often speak about the patience of Job, and that comes from a King James Version translation of James 5.11. The NRSV translates the word endurance, which they mean Basically, the same thing, but endurance is probably a better word because patience implies a pleasant attitude, um, no sense of questioning or frustration. And that only lasts in Job for the first two chapters. And then he becomes disgruntled. He doesn't understand. So we endure and we can stay faithful to God even as we are disgruntled, frustrated, and confused. So if you don't have the patience of Job, Able to go through anything with a great attitude, don't worry about it. Um, Neither did Job. Job tells us that we have room to wonder, to question, to be angry or heartbroken or frustrated, and still be considered righteous and faithful to God. This story is set not in Israel or any of their territories, but in a faraway land called Uz. All the characters are non-Israelites, and there's no clear historical time period to which the story belongs. All of these seem pretty intentional to make it universal, universally applicable, and to keep us focused on the questions that are raised by Job's suffering rather than what it meant in a particular time period or for a particular people. The question is, Why do bad things happen to good people? We assume that the book is going to give us an answer to this, but it's not. It's not going to answer the question. The real question is going to be whether God is just and whether God really really runs the world on this idea of justice. The reason for Job's suffering is never revealed to Job. He finishes this book with no more understanding of why than he started. His friends who talk, come and talk to him are going to represent the very best of Near Eastern thinking about suffering. Um, the structure of the book is also very intentional. The epilogue in chapter 42 and there's a prologue in chapters 1 and 2. And between those is a very dense portion of, po- of Hebrew poetry. It's almost like um, like the Canterbury Tales, where um, it's set in verse, but there's a lot of story and it's long. There are conversations with four different dialogue partners. There are the friends with whom he will converse in chapters 3 through 37. And then there's a conversation with a fourth, an unexpected friend. And then there's a conversation with God and In chapters 38 through 41, Um, there are three cycles to the debate with friends. Job is going to say something and a friend is going to respond. Job's going to respond to that and another friend is going to have an answer. Job's going to respond and the third friend is going to answer and then Job's going to have a final word. And so those three cycles occur roughly through chapters 3 through 14 for the first cycle, chapters 15 through 21 for the second cycle, and chapters 22 through 28 for the third cycle. The big assumption is that every every single thing should operate on the principles of justice, and that should happen very strictly. So in other words, um, when there's a good human action, it should always equal success or reward. And when there's a bad human action, it should always result in disaster or punishment. Um, and we we can look around and see that that does not happen. Job insists that he is innocent. So this cannot be seen as divine justice. And he's right. We know that from how the story is set up. Um, his friends are not going to know it, but we know it. The conclusion is, then seems to be that either God doesn't run the world on justice or that God is not just because justice is absent. Um, his friends beg to differ. God is just, and all that happens is just. Um, that's the implication that you do deserve this. You're just not admitting or not realizing why. So the conclusion is that Job is not innocent, and he just needs to figure out what he's done wrong, and admit what it is. In chapter 22, they start suggesting sins he might have committed. So since you can't think of them, let me me throw some out here. And Job gets really fed up. Job then takes his case up with God um, because the friends are no help. Job is on an emotional roller coaster throughout this. He used to believe that God was just, but he just can't reconcile that with his suffering. Notice that he was perfectly willing to believe that God was just and that that worked out. Good equal blessing and bad equal punishment, as long as he wasn't the one suffering. But when he begins to suffer, suddenly he's he begins to question whether that happens just exactly like that. He has outbursts. Um, he calls God a bully. He accuses God of being the author of injustice. Um, but the very idea... That God is not just absolutely terrifies him. Because what happens if the God of all creation is not a good God, is not just? What if that God turns out to be capricious and flawed? And that scares him. But he doesn't know how to reconcile his suffering. And I'm so glad this book is here because so many of us wrestle with this. I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why this was happening. That doesn't seem right or fair or just. Ultimately, he demands that God come and answer him. And that's when a surprise friend shows up instead. Um, this one has a Hebrew name. He makes the same arguments that God is just and the same implication that God does run the world justly. Um But his arguments are a little bit more sophisticated and his conclusion is a little more sophisticated. Suffering may be a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. So maybe you didn't deserve this suffering, but by suffering, you won't fall into sin that would bring suffering in the future. Or maybe suffering builds character or teaches us valuable lessons. He doesn't know why Job is suffering, but he's but he is sure that Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust, and God, Job doesn't respond to this friend. Ultimately though, God does show up and God responds, and he takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. God is not incompetent, and the point is that underneath their assumption about justice, that good equals reward and bad equals punishment, is the deeper assumption that they have enough perspective to determine what is just, that they have enough perspective to judge that. God's response deconstructs all of, all of their assumptions and all of their conclusions. The universe is a vast and complex place that God holds every detail. God is aware of every single detail in this vast and complicated universe. Job has very limited experience and therefore a very limited viewpoint. What looks like injustice can be seen differently in a larger context, but he's just not in a position to make such an accusation of God. God asked Job, in fact, if if he'd like to run the world by those rules like you, you think you could do it better? You Come on, big boy. Let, let's let you give it a try. Um, justice is extremely complex. Nothing is ever black and white. There's an awful lot of gray in our world. We want to assume black and white because it's easy. It's easier for us than wrestling with the complexities. And God's final point describes two fantastical creatures, the behemoth and the Leviathan. Some have suggested that these may be poetic descriptions of a hippopotamus and a crocodile, but more likely it's those well known creatures from Near Eastern mythology that are also mentioned in Isaiah 27 and Psalm 74. They are symbols of disorder and of danger in God's good world. They're dangerous, but they're not evil. They aren't safe, but they aren't evil. The implication being that God's world is good, but it's not perfect. Life in God's good world can be dangerous, but it isn't necessarily evil. As ordered and beautiful as the world is, it is also wild and sometimes dangerous. And God, as good as God is, is not tamed and confined. Um, and disrespect and Rebellion against God can be dangerous as well. So they return to the big question, why is there suffering in God's good world? And the response is that the world is complex. Job demands an explanation, and God asks Job to trust, to trust in God's wisdom and character. And Job does. Job responds with humility and repentance um, for the thoughts and the attitudes that he has had. His friends were wrong. Their ideas are just too simplistic for the complex world in which we live. Job, God says, has spoken rightly. though being angry and irritated and confused and heartbroken and lashing out, Job has done right. Not He hasn't done everything right, but he's remained in the right. God approves of Job's wrestling with understanding what's happening to him. He also approves of him coming to God with all of his emotions, all of his questions and feelings, and pouring them out honestly before God. That is the right way to handle and to process when we go through difficult times, is to take them to God. We pour all that out before God, and I do not understand. And we, we of course, do that through prayer. Good things happen after all of this and um, but there will be also be bad and challenging after this as well. So let's jump in. Chapters one and two are the prologue. They are in prose rather than poetry, so they're more narrative. In verses one through three, we learn two crucial facts about Job. He is absolutely righteous, upright, and blameless. What follows is not deserved. And the second thing we learn is that he is a man of tradition, religion, and piety. He sacrifices after the parties on behalf of his children. He follows God. He does his best to be righteous and all that God would want him to be. In other words, Job is a great man. He has seven sons, three daughters. Um, By the way, seven, ten, and three are all numbers associated with completion or fullness, um, significant numbers in the Bible. He has a large family tribe. He has extensive holdings, so he's not only a great man as a person but he's a great man as a the leader of of a of a tribe of a clan of a of an estate. In verses four and five, we also see that job has a limited understanding of God. He needs to constantly placate God just in case um, it shows his desire. To leave any room for impropriety, but it also shows that he has limited understanding of God. Verses 6 through 12 set up a courtroom setting. The heavenly beings are gathered for a divine council. Um, in verse 6, those heavenly beings are called sons of God. And among them is one called the Satan. Um, hasatan is the way it would have been in Hebrew. The word is descriptive of the function It's not actually a proper name. We've turned it into a proper name. But the Satan is the accuser. The definitive article, article, the, always appears with it. So this is the Satan, the accuser. The Satan's role has been to examine human, human behavior, to go throughout the earth, to and fro on the earth, examine human behavior, and come back and report it to the court. And it is God who points out Job. Hey, while you're out there looking around at human behavior, um, did you did you note know my boy Job here? Take a look at Job. Um, it is God who puts Job forward as a shining example of the best of humanity. The Satan says, "Well, of course he respects you. You have blessed him mightily. He's got nothing to complain about. Why wouldn't he love and respect you? You've paid him off." Um, he would fold like a cheap suit if you stopped blessing him and took away what he had. Um, so that's the challenge. He challenges the nature of a relationship, especially between God and humans. Are humans, do humans require God's blessing in order to love and respect God? Is this a quid pro quo situation or is there genuine devotion? So, God gives the Satan permission to test Job. He's a test specimen in an experiment. He's a lab rat in a maze. The only boundary that God sets, ultimately, is his life. The Satan may not end his life. Now, this is not a literal story. We, there doesn't necessarily have to have ever been an actual Job. It can be an explanatory tale. Job never learns the source of his suffering. He's ignorant of the origin of both his joy and his sorrow and that both of those are part of the human condition. Um, any simple connection between our human behaviors and blessing or cursing is just not entirely discernible and too simplistic. In verses 13 through 22, um, the Satan, the Satan goes to work. Job loses all of his estate, his domestic animals, his servants, and his children. His response is one of traditional piety. I started with nothing. I can end with nothing. Nevertheless, may the name of God be praised. So in chapter 2, the court has reconvened. And Job has passed the test. Oh, but the Satan is not finished. He says, yeah. He still praises you and loves and respects you, but he still has his health. If you were to strike at his health, he would turn on you. Uh, In verse 3, this happens for no reason. So permission is given again to strike at Job's health. Now, many suggestions have been made for the disease with which Job is struck. Um, Scabies, leprosy, leprosy proper, we call it Hansen's disease or... Um, mycobacterial leprosy, which is modern leprosy, um, it could also be hypoimmunoglobulin E syndrome, um, draining sores and pustules. Um, that that has been raised. Um, elephantiasis or black leprosy has been raised as a possibility. Um, this is an an ancient idea that started, it was rendered in the Greek translation known to Origen when he wrote his book, Hesopla. Um, The ash that may have been applied to the sores is an attempt to create scabs um, to keep the sores from just oozing and being gross. Um, But elephantiasis is the obstruction of the lymphatic system causing fluid accumulation, especially in the arms, legs, and genital areas. They would swell to several times their size and would tend to look like um the thick, round appearance of an elephant leg, so that's where it gets its name from. but the skin becomes dry, thickened, and pebbly looking, but there would have been it would have been ulcerated, pitted, and darkened with hyperkeratosis. It would have burned, itched, would have had been painful, would have run fevers, had chills, and then would have been oozing when those places broke open in there. We don't really know what he's struck with, but he's struck with something very painful with blisters, bulls, oozing, gross. In verses 9 through 10, his wife makes an appearance, and it's easy to blame her or to judge her harshly. Let's remember that she's also been through a terrible trauma. She suffers alongside Job. She, too, has lost home, animals, servants, and children. While we're not told that this strikes at her health, she's grieving and in the midst of trauma. It's a deep state of grief and despair that she is experiencing, and now watching her husband suffer physically is a suffering for her and a source of trauma. She seems to feel that death would be merciful, especially since it appears inevitable. She's also operating on those common assumptions that suffering means wrongdoing or that God isn't good. Um, His wife can't be supportive, and she can't be supportive for this story to work. Like, he can't have an ally. He's got to be alone. He has to have lost everything, including his support system. There are no friends. There's no spouse. There's no servant who's sympathetic, supportive, and helps walk him through this. When we are left with absolutely nothing, Will we turn and curse God and die, or will we remain faithful? Um, The Satan would have used that against him when the court reconvened. Yeah, but he still had a support system. He made it through because he still had his wife. If he hadn't had his wife, he would have cursed you. And yet Job remained steadfast. Shall we only accept good from God? If God does reward and and punish, then we must accept both. Um, That's Job's thinking. The question remains hanging in the air as three of his friends show up to comfort him. And if you had been able to see me, you would have seen that I did air quotes for that. Um, They think they're coming to comfort him, and they're not very comforting at all. In verses 11 through 13, the arrival of Eliaphaz the Temanite, Beldad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. looks bad. When they see him, his physical appearance is shocking, and they mourn. They grieve. And they sit in silence for seven days, for a complete week, for a long and complete time. It would have been better if their friends had continued to sit quietly, to listen, and remain silent. That would have been supportive. But again, he can't have a support system or the satan would use it against him. So we're going to have three cycles of debate um, that occur. All right. Um, in chapter four, verse seven, genuinely innocent and upright people are not punished, um, according to the friends, according to Eliaphaz. This was a common belief at the time. Job needs to be honest Maybe he's forgotten. Wake up and remember and repent. Um, Chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 42, verse 6 is a long poem. All of this is written in verse, remember. Job then turns on his friends. Chapter 6, you are not helping. You're making it worse. Um, His inability to convince his friends of his innocence leaves him feeling completely alone. He feels absolutely helpless. In chapter 7, verse 6, there's a clever pun. The Hebrew word for thread is identical to the word for hope. Life is like the weaver's shuttle rushing back and forth through the loom, but there's no finished product. We just die. We weave and weave and weave and weave, yet we never get a garment. We just die. Um, Chapter 7, verse 17 is very similar to Psalms, chapter 8, verse 4. Humans are not much. He implores God to stop giving him so much attention. Like, could you please look away? Give me a break. Um, Please, please give me a little bit of break. Bildad in chapter 8, he's cruel. He calls the kids rank sinners. They got what they deserved. And so are you. (laughs) wow that that's a friend. Talk about kicking somebody when they're down. Um, nine twenty is the chapter nine verse twenty is the low moment for job though he is blameless, he says that God would twist his words and use his own words and actions to condemn him. Here that is very helpless. This is a frustrated, distraught person expressing what they're feeling. What this says to us is that we may be there someday, and it's okay for us to express it. It's not blasphemy, it's honesty, and God is still present with us, even in the midst of our anger and our hostility. In chapter 9, verse 33, he calls for an umpire. An umpire would be an impartial judge, an external authority with no preference for either party, someone who could level the power differential— that makes safe conversation with God possible. Um, Jesus becomes this person, becomes this umpire, this one who answers the Satan, who answers our accuser. In chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, there are several synonyms for darkness that are used in these verses, and they are reflective of the state of despair present in Job's soul. In chapter 11, Zophar speaks. Um, Zophar hears Job as being blasphemous. Um, And in verse 6, he makes an absolutely monstrous statement. Even now, God exacts of you less than you deserve. You deserve far worse than what you are experiencing. Holy cow. I mean, hear that with a sarcastic and cruel tone. And then in verse 12, he calls Job stupid. At this point, I begin to wonder, Job, you need, you need some better friends here. But this is what happens when we go through things that make other people uncomfortable, things that don't seem to match our theology. It becomes easy for people to turn on us and blame it on us and make it our fault. Um, the book of Job exists to say it's not that black and white. It's not that cut and dried. So that takes us through the first 11 chapters that we were reading this week.